welcome to our special four-part series diving into the world of search and rescue, where real heroes step in when our adventures take a turn. Search and rescue pros populate the background of all the stories we tell on Out Alive, and now we're bringing them some much-deserved spotlight. This series is all about giving you a behind-the-scenes look, sharing first-hand stories from search and rescue teams across the U.S. We'll unpack what it's truly like to be the ones getting that urgent call, the unexpected challenges they face, their own tales from the field, and what happens when a rescuer pays the price for another outdoor enthusiast's lack of preparation. In this episode, we're starting things off close to home, taking a deep dive into Rocky Mountain Rescue. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. of 1947, deep in the heart of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, a tragedy unfolded that would change the course of search and rescue in the region forever. A little girl had gone missing. She'd wandered into the rugged wilderness surrounding her mountain home, and she hadn't come back. Local authorities couldn't get to her. The terrain was too rough, too dangerous. She'd been gone for hours. The temperatures were dropping. The clock was ticking. Desperate to save her, the Boulder County Sheriff begged local mountaineers to help. Several did, but despite their best efforts, the mission ended in sorrow. After a long and arduous search, they discovered the girl's body. The searchers would later learn that they had come within just a few feet of the girl. Lacking sophisticated search techniques, they'd walked right by her. A question echoed in everyone's mind. Could her death have been prevented if an organized mountain rescue team had been there to respond? What about the countless others who had died in the same mountains over the years? Could they have been saved too? The anguish and the grief left a mark on the community and spurred it into action. Determined to stem the loss of life, local authorities and recreationists put their heads together. After all, Boulder County was home to some of the most technical adept climbers, hikers, and mountaineers in the nation. One by one, they stepped forward to volunteer their services and undergo further training. Now, 76 years later, Rocky Mountain Rescue is one of the busiest search and rescue teams in the U.S. Boulder, Colorado is an outdoor enthusiast mecca. It also happens to be Outside Inc.'s and Backpacker's hometown. You can find world-class rock climbing just 15 minutes from town. 
Cyclists form a constant stream along the city's bike paths and Boulder's nearly 250 miles of trail see year-round use from thousands of locals and from the 1.8 million tourists that visit each year. So even though Boulder's population is only about 100,000, it's probably home to more outdoor athletes per capita than any other town in the nation. That's more than enough to keep Rocky Mountain Rescue busy. Today, RMR is one of the oldest and best organized search and rescue groups in the country. Their team of 70 members respond to nearly 200 calls each year across the rugged Front Range and deeper Rockies. My name is Angela Tomczyk, and I am a member of Rocky Mountain Rescue Group. I've been on Rocky Mountain Rescue Group for 10 years now. My name is Allison Sheets. I'm an emergency physician as my day job. And I approached the team and really just became kind of appointed the medical director and took over for the previous medical director. So that's really how I got connected with the team. It turned out that being appointed the medical director didn't really make me a member that was fieldable. So I also had to go through some training and checkoffs and ultimately got voted in as a regular member in 2008 and started in 2006. So I've been doing it for a little while now and I'm still the medical director. I've been part of almost 900 rescues. I'm 850 or 60 by the count, and I don't know if that's absolutely 100% of them, but that's plenty. That's a lot. (laughs) Although there's people in my team that have done more, but I do a lot. I'm I'm usually in the top 10 numbers for responding in any given year, so I'm pretty active. You might think since Allison is a physician that her position as the medical director would be paid, but even as a doctor, all her time is volunteered. Every second, minute, hour, (laughs) day, week, month that I devote to my rescue work is volunteer. I don't get paid for any of it. Never have. It's uh, pretty significant when we consider that there's averaging somewhere around 200 calls a year. This is Chris Ronaldo. He's one of RMR's newest members. Majority of calls go out and are supported by about half of the members for most of the time. It's a pretty significant time commitment and everyone that's out there has some other type of career that they're doing. In fact, there's physicians and other types of healthcare providers that are members of the team. There's engineers, there's guides. One of the beautiful parts of our team is that we have people from all different walks of life. This is Angela, a field team leader and executive board member at RMR. We have uh, lots of members that have been around for a long time. Our team is 76 years old. So we have members that have been around and seen a a lot of the accidents that commonly happen. The team has a reputation. There's a legendary, almost mysterious air about it, like it's a group of undercover vigilante superheroes who walk among us in disguise. Most longtime Boulder residents know at least one person who's been a member of or who's been rescued by RMR. Joining the team is considered prestigious, and since Boulder is a town full of hyperactive go-getters, you can imagine that they get a lot of applicants. It's interesting, and I've seen since I've been a member that our application process for bringing in new people has gotten a little bit harder, and you'd think that that would discourage people, but actually, sort of the higher bar you set, 
We found that we get more and more people applying. This is Allison again, RMR's medical director. It's not easy to get into our team. And, you know, every team in the country, every MRA team is a little bit different. So depending on the community, the size, the needs, the the call volume um, will determine a lot on how a team will bring in new members. But we have a process where we open it up for applications. We do that about every two years. We'll open up for new members. And so we'll get a, a barrage of applications. We've got a fairly long application that people have to fill out. And so we'll get something like, you know, 60, maybe even 75 applications for something like 10 to 12 positions. And we'll get about 25 or 30 people that we want to interview. Um, then we bring them in for interviews. And from that, we choose our class of uh, 10 or 12. Those 10 or 12 get to be prospectives, which means that they enter a six to 12 month apprenticeship process. Prospectives have to attend lectures, training weekends, and hours long practice sessions in the field. They have to memorize all the region's roadmaps and trails and learn to tie complex knots one-handed or in the dark. They have to pass a succession of rigorous skills tests and then stand before a panel of judges to make their case to get voted in. It's worked out pretty well. And usually from those 10 to 12 people, we'll get most of them will stay with us and end up being members. So it's, it's quite a long, long process. We, we're looking for commitment. You know, we're a busy team. We need people that are available. And so we kind of put people through the ringer, so to speak, and when they come out the other end, they're usually pretty committed and end up being excellent members. We're looking for people who would act professionally, that are willing to step up and do the tasks that are needed, that are uh, open and willing to learn from the group. Um, They're not looking for people who are going to want to go it alone or going to show up and be like that person that tries to seek that, I don't know if it's glory or whatever the case may be, but just trying to do it on their own. They're looking for people that are willing to work together. Once they're on the team, members have to participate in a minimum number of rescues, usually totaling 100 hours per year. That's a lot of time and energy, not to mention money. Right now, the team doesn't have a system for reimbursing volunteers for gas, even though some folks drive hundreds of miles each year to remote rescue sites. So why do it? What's the reward? Here's Angela again. Originally, I was interested in search and rescue because I was a climber, a hiker, a backpacker, trail runner. I did all of the sports outside and I was looking for an organization that I could volunteer with. I was in college, so I went online and I searched for search and rescue because I thought that it would be a fun way for me to volunteer and do the activities that I love doing. As I joined the team and started volunteering more, a lot of my friends were climbers and outdoor enthusiasts themselves. And during that time, I also lost multiple friends or had multiple friends who um, were in accidents themselves. My view of my own involvement in search and rescue started to shift as well because it became not only me volunteering to help people that I didn't know, but also I had more personal connection. Some members like Angela are motivated to protect the communities they love. Others are motivated by the sense of adventure and camaraderie. 
I started with Rocky Mountain Rescue because I had initially been encouraged by a, a good friend and outdoor adventurer. He had started ski patrolling and that first season of ski patrol, I thought, wow, this is a really amazing experience to be able to be in the mountains and on the slopes and helping people out. And I immediately started looking for other outlets for that kind of energy and that kind of interest. So personal motivations, it's this idea around generally being able to be a part of a team that works together to maybe help someone out of what might be one of the worst days that they're, they've ever experienced. And uh, to just see and be a part of the action and the necessary work that goes into getting those people to the next level of care or safely out or found, whatever the case may be. So I think really that camaraderie and teamwork and being in places that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable, but that we're enduring together to accomplish this goal. Most people come out of residency and just get a full-time job and be good with that. I had enough interaction with the Boulder outdoor community and had been a ski patroller is very much a provider of aid in the at the ski area and I'd been an EMT. So I had a lot of these kind of pre-hospital skills and I loved being outside and being the medical director for the team seemed like a really good fit. It brought a lot of my interests together in a in a significant way. I had the backcountry skills and plus I had the medical skills. I had the bandwidth to volunteer my time. And once you start in search and rescue, sometimes people get hooked. And I clearly got hooked because it has essentially dominated my life since about 2008. It just seemed like the perfect combination for me with my various skills to provide a service to my community in a way that you really can't do any other way. We're all coming together for a mission to go out and help people, to help the community, to go out and be in the areas that we love and um, help other people who love those areas too. And because of that and coming together in really, oftentimes the more negative situations, we really come together and are very close. We're like a family. We all know exactly what car each person drives because we all meet at the trailhead. We hike in, we ask about each other's families, work, background, school. We, we have a lot of time to talk and catch up, but then we also have a lot of time where situations are more stressful. I recently had the, the honor of attending two members who were married together. And instead of, say, like walking down the aisle of sabers, as they'd walk down the aisle of upheld ice axes and go through a tunnel of tools. And so showing that support to the members as they went to that next adventure together. There's things that we do where we will be out and have a mission. And one of the first things that people are ready to step up to and say is, hey, who would like to go and get some ice cream right after? Or who wants to do this and grab a bike to eat after this practice? So those things happen pretty regularly. And in addition to working together out on missions, oftentimes there'll be opportunities to do things together and be a part of a community. Now we've got about 70 people, so you're not going to be best friends with 70 people. There's just no way. Whether or not they're your best friend, they're somebody you trust and count on. And that is uh, an amazing connection that you get with our teammates. 
it's pretty wonderful. And that's, I really think, what makes folks stick around in search and rescue. The work is pretty cool, but you develop this relationship with a lot of people, and it's pretty hard to replace that. It's a special thing for sure, and it keeps a lot of people doing it for years and years. But that's not to say it's always fun or glamorous. Mountain rescue is a tricky job. Success is never guaranteed, and sometimes it can feel like there's just as much sobering tragedy as triumph. Well, the lows, and one of the things that surprised me when I first became a member was that uh, a lot of people will go out into the mountains to commit suicide. And this year hasn't been so bad, knock on wood, but we probably go historically on average for about five or six suicides a year, which are uh, often horrible. I won't go into detail, but um, never fun, never pleasant. And then you're also having to deal with that part of the rescue packaging and transporting someone who's deceased. And you also have at the trailhead, oftentimes family members or friends that are distraught. And so those things can be extremely difficult from a stress standpoint. The other things that are hard are searches where you don't find a person. And we've had a few of those and days and days of searching and you don't find somebody, it's that kind of unresolved thing that can be pretty difficult for folks. Compounding that mental health impact is the fact that Boulder is a small town. Earlier, we mentioned that most locals have a friend or acquaintance on RMR. While the everybody knows everybody phenomenon goes both ways, when RMR shows up on the scene of a grisly accident, the odds are pretty good that at least one of the rescuers will realize they know the victim. For myself personally, there have been missions that I either choose not to go on myself or choose to take a role that is less involved or specifically less involved with a patient if I feel like it's a little bit too close to home for me. Rescues that involve people getting injured in the areas that I commonly go to, doing some of the activities that I enjoy, I sometimes take a step back before I decide what role I want to be in. And sometimes I ask additional questions about the patient to, to see whether or not it might be somebody who I'm close with. So I might ask ahead of time before I enter the field to figure out what I'm getting myself into because I want to make sure that I'm protecting myself. For example, I might not go on a rescue to some if I know that the description of the person might describe the demographic of the of the people that I'm commonly climbing with, whether it's that they have the same gear, the same shoes, the same height, weight description of a friend of mine. I might choose to try and ask more questions or get the name of that person before I put myself in a position of approaching that patient. We definitely lean on each other, and I know that I could ask any teammate at any time to um, help me to step back if I need to add a little bit extra separation because sometimes things can be a, a little bit too real. Even when the stakes couldn't be higher, members' mental health comes first. RMR will happily find substitute members or make do with a little bit less manpower on the scene if it means protecting their people from psychological impact. But the trauma of rescue isn't the only emotional ripple effect. This last weekend, I left for a 
a search on Saturday and it wasn't my daughter's birthday per se, but she decided that she was going to have a party of, with her friends. And so instead of me being available to help transport kids around and support that, I was on the mission and came back and was quite tired at the end of that one. And they were excited to hear about how that had turned out. So I think they're supportive and excited and proud at the idea that I'm participating in these things to help support the community. But there is a cost, not just to my time and my own personal enjoyment, but also that my family may be having to bear as well. Most of the search and rescue organizations in the United States are going to be staffed by volunteers who may be at work, who may be having dinner with their family, who may be doing things that they have to now drop and respond to. I was at a rescue and there were some rescuers that had ridden their bikes to the trailhead. And I thought, wow, that's really incredible. And then when I was talking about that with another rescuer, he said, oh yeah, that's nothing. There was a guy who had to take the bus. (laughs) He had no vehicle whatsoever and took the bus from out of town to be able to get to the rescue. In some ways, the surprise is how really boring it can be. There's a lot of standing around. There's a lot of times we get called and get turned around. We drive miles and maybe don't even get out of the car, which not the glamour part of the job, but pretty frequent, actually. Rescues get canceled like that all the time. But even the ones that do go to completion can be tedious. Contrary to what you might see in the media, it's not all rappelling out of helicopters and plucking climbers off mountaintops. While there are undoubtedly some adrenaline-pounding moments, most rescue work is a slow, back-breaking grind. It's a lot of schlepping heavy gear up and down trails, <laughs> trying to negotiate poison ivy patches, doing stuff that's physically hard. And it's really only a couple people that get to do the, the super cool stuff. The whole effort of the team is, of course, vital to the ability to perform these jobs. There's a lot of stuff that's not very interesting. And I think that surprises people. And I think the other thing that surprises people is how much administrative work there is to make an operation like this happen. We've got three trucks full of gear. We've got a building we've got to manage. There's an immense amount of time at the executive board level. We have an equipment committee. We have a radio committee. I think that it's easy to think that it's just people who grab the gear and go outside and are just magically ready to go. But there's people with computer science backgrounds that are helping on the technology side of it. We have people who are really good with vehicles that help with making sure our trucks are up and ready to go. We have people who are complete gear nerds that love investigating all of the different equipment potentials as our equipment modernizes as well. Um, And all of that just takes a lot of time, but it also takes a lot of skill. And so it's really neat to see all those skills come together. I don't know. It's not a profession, but it's a calling. It's a passion. I know people all over the country and all over the world that do search and rescue, and it's a certain person that really gets into that and continues that that are just instantly brothers and sisters. It's a lifestyle for sure. But we like what we do. (laughs) Next time on Search and Rescue Stories. I was like totally unconscious and scorpioned on the end of the road. I started convulsing, he said, for like maybe 10 to 15 seconds. And then I didn't move for like at least a minute, maybe two around there. Trevor thought I might be dead. 
This episode was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, with scripting, reporting, and co-producing by Corey Buhay. Thank you to Rocky Mountain Rescue and especially Angela Tomsic, Allison Sheets, and Chris Ronaldo for sharing your time and stories with us. Out Alive is made possible by the members of Outside Plus. If you have a survival story you want to share, you can email me at outalive at outsideinc.com. 